people are very critical of Pope Francis this mm. and Pope Francis that. I keep on reminding myself, don't forget how conscious you were of the presence of the Holy Spirit during that conclave. Mm. Therefore, the man you've got, the man we've got now, has to be the choice of the Holy Spirit. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Cardinal Wilfred Napier is the Archbishop of Durban, South Africa. He recently published a book entitled The Here and Now Christian. He's going to talk to us about his book, his life, his studies and formation during the Second Vatican Council, being a bishop for over 30 years and the challenges we face in South Africa today. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Cardinal Napier, thank you very much for coming in and agreeing to talk to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you grew up, your interests, your hobbies. I'm from a family of seven children. Mm -hmm. We grew up in the area around Coxted, a little village called Swatburg. We're on a farm just about four or five miles from the little village and had to go to school, therefore, in a town where we boarded with my aunt, my mum's sister. I was there from sub-A, which was grade zero now, I suppose, up to standard five or grade seven. Mm -hmm. And then I moved over to Little Flower School at Ecopo, where I went right through to matric. Mm -hmm. And it was in the last two years that while I was in Ecopo doing my matric, that um, the seriousness of what I'm going to do came to my attention, that I had to start thinking seriously about that. And all of out of the blue, my eldest brother, who had been, had done his matric, and then he worked in a local factory in Franklin. And then he moved on and started doing building with the Franciscan brothers. They were building hospitals. And he got very interested in the way the brothers lived and the work that they did and so on. And then he said he would like to go and join the Franciscans as a brother. Mm-hmm. But our parish priest said, you've got your matric. Why not try the priesthood? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he didn't read the guy properly because my brother is certainly not a bookman. He's, he's <laughs> much, very much a hands-on so he went over to Ireland, and after six months, he said, no, this is not for me. He hadn't done Latin at school, and so much was still dependent on Latin. So he was really out of it in a way, you know. Now, that had given me a, a real boost in saying, well, there's an indicator now. Let's give it a try. And then as I came to the end of my final year at school, there was two options, the University of Lesotho, Roma University, mm. I liked science, so I was going to do a BSc, I thought. And so I made inquiries and looked at prospectuses and so on. And then came the moment when I said, no, let me give the, the, the religious life, the priesthood, a try. Mm-hmm. Went to our parish priest, and he was very much in, encouraging me. Put me on to one of the other friars who was actually the vocations director. He gave me a number of things about St. Francis, and so got more and more into understanding who Francis was. Mm-hmm. And then the end of that year, I went over to Ireland. And when I got there, the thing that won me over was, you'll have no problem with the Irish. It's just like being at boarding school. <laughs> just fortunate that he and I enjoyed being at boarding school. school. Many mm-hmm. other guys had bad experiences, wouldn't have seen boarding school as a recommendation for anyone. So I spent um, after a novitiate in Ireland, three years in Galway, doing a BA degree. And then, as the friars had it at that time, if you did a degree in humanities in Galway, you had to go to Louvain for philosophy. Mm. And then for theology, it would have been Rome. 
Now, this is the 60s, mm. upsurge in vocations, just like the final kick or something. Mm. And uh, by the time I reached uh, the point where I should have been going to Rome for theology, there were too many students in our house in Rome to wow. accommodate the lot, from, the lot of us from Louvain. So the decision was taken, we must continue our theology in Louvain. And it was the best time to be in Louvain. It was the time of just the council and just after the council. And some of the Louvain professors were periti at the, mm. at the council. So they were giving us not just what the council was about, but how it was actually developing. So we came away from there with a very a much better understanding, I'd say, of the new church that was being proposed by the council. One of the great disadvantages, of course, was the disintegration of canon law. Mm. It was virtually scrapped. The notes that we got were hardly a quarter of an inch thick, uh, the canon law notes in the four years that we did canon law. Wow. It was still in a state of flux. The new code was being composed. But so we more or less stopped at the principles and the basics of canon law. And that would be their disadvantage. Fortunately, just after I was ordained, Frank Morrissey came out here in the 1980s. And he gave us a much better in insight into canon law. So that was that kind of gap was covered in those later stages. Hmm. So after my ordination, I spent a few months learning Kosa language. And then I was posted to a small rural parish in Pondoland, down near the coast, in the Pondo coast. Um, it was a wonderful experience being introduced to pastoral life, but also being introduced to a different form of interracial, inter interlanguage kind of culture, intercultural experience. Mm. It was where I experienced the second half of what I consider to be two great blessings. The first one was when I got to Ireland and I had to make the decision. It was my first time living with white people. Mm. And the whole apartheid mentality was, the whole narrative was, the whites are superior to everybody else. So don't ever even try to get up to that level. And I get to Ireland and here the guys are just the same as us. So I took a resolution in that course of that time, I said, the Irish, the white people are different, but that doesn't make them superior. Deal with them man to man. The second half of that blessing was when I was in Lusikisiki. I think it was very early on, the second or third week that I was there. I went to one of the big outstations. At the end of the mass, the leading lady at the, the outstation stood up and she made a speech welcoming me. But these were the words that really struck me and stuck. She said, how lovely it is to have one of our own sons as our priest. Hmm. And I said, blacks may be different. That doesn't make them inferior. Deal with them man to man. Hmm. Not looking down or looking up to anybody. Deal man to man. And that's been my approach, I, I think, ever since. It's just you deal with people as human beings and not as this kind of a human being or that kind of a human being. In some ways, you're really a product of the council. I mean, you part of that generation that would have experienced the pre-conciliar church. Very much so. And one that has experienced in a very real way the post-conciliar church. It must have been quite an adjustment, but also a time of real excitement. It was. And the, the other thing is that transitional period was also very challenging, mm. very exciting, but very challenging as well. Moving from the, the, the dialogue mass was the first step. Mm certain parts of the Mass were in the vernacular. And then we moved on to other things being in the vernacular, English, the office, for instance, the breviary coming out in English. So there was a transitional period as well. 
where I suppose there would have been times when you'd hanker for the past and say, this was better in the past. The present is a bit too, and the future is a bit too unclear, too uncertain. And yet at the same time, I think we, we had, um, in spite of everything, we had a very strong sense of the Holy Spirit is guiding this thing. Mm. And we are in the hands of the man above, so we don't have to really worry too much about whether it's going to go astray or not. There was also a great confidence, I would say, in Pope Paul VI. Mm. And especially in later years, when I look back, I realize just what a great man he was. When he was faced with the issue of, for instance, priests and religious leading that way of life and seeking dispensations and laicization and so on. At first, the, the rules were very simple. You requested and you got it. Mm. Then, after some years, and not many years either, guys wanted to come back. Mm. Many priests wanted to come back. They, they, we made a mistake. And then Paul VI said, I've got to do something here. So he tightened up and made it a lot more challenging to guys before they made the final decision to leave. Mm. If you think back, your experience then and the transition and the sense of something new and maybe thinking about the past, do you see parallels with where we are in the church at the moment? It seems as if, as well, there's something new happening in the church. A lot of people are saying it was better in the past. Just your thoughts about that? Yes, I do. And I think, let me go back to the, the conclave. Mm. Just before the conclave, the second one, the one that elected Pope Francis, mm. we got notification especially those of us on Twitter, but others on email. Mm. Notification, we've got a, a campaign running called Adopt a Cardinal. Mm. And what was done then was people signed up and then they were allocated a, a cardinal that they would undertake to pray for during the conclave. Mm. As a result of that, I never felt in any meeting of that kind the presence of the Holy Spirit, so supported by the prayers of other people, who were lay as well as religious and priests who had uh, taken on this thing of adopt a cardinal. So when the result came out and uh, subsequent to the result coming out, and people are very critical of Pope Francis this mm. and Pope Francis that, I keep on reminding myself, don't forget how conscious you were of the presence of the Holy Spirit during that conclave. Mm. Therefore, the man you've got, the man we've got now, has to be the choice of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, whether you can't understand or you don't like some of the things he's doing or saying, that's the man the Holy Spirit has put there. And why the Holy Spirit is put there? Not to make life easier for us, but to put challenges before us so that we, we lead the church along to a higher and higher level of, of being the, the disciple of the kingdom of God, if you like. Mm, mm. You, you've been to two conclaves, that's and right, I don't yeah. expect you to tell us what happened. Mm. But I wonder as well how the influence of social media, you spoke about Twitter mm. and so forth, mm. must be getting much more difficult in spaces like the conclave to hold that space still confidential and secret when sort of technology seems to be almost chewing at the doors to get in. Or overriding many of those precautions that were there for a purpose. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I think you'd be very conscious of that now. And especially when you find out that there are certain movements within the church that are saying, because of the choice of Pope Francis, cardinals didn't know who they were choosing. Mm. They didn't know the quality of the person they were choosing. They didn't know the direction in which the Pope would take the, the church. Now they're assuming that Bergoglio came out of nowhere. Mm. They're forgetting that he was one of the key figures in the Aparecida document. Mm. 
and they're forgetting that he was part of a thinking from the Latin American church. And that thinking, I think especially since the days when, if it was liberation theology, perhaps it would have a, not be such a positive thing, but certainly the small Christian community model of church that came out of Latin America, that had a huge impact, especially here in Africa, I think. Hmm. And I think that's the kind of church out of which um, Cardinal Bergoglio would have been coming. So when he was chosen as Pope, those who knew him well knew those qualities that would come out. But I think they were also surprised, just as we were surprised when Benedict, when he took over as Pope, hmm. very surprised at the pastoral, this superbly pastoral approach that he took to the office. Many people expected him to be the, the teacher, the professor, the conservative. It was very much the opposite. He was a great, great pastor. Mm. Now, from the conclave, I would say there's a movement now that I pick up where people are saying we must actually get pen pictures of cardinals. Now, the pen picture might sound like a good idea. And I've got a book which I, I give favorite position in my parlor. It's about all the cardinals, mm. and there is a pen picture of each of us, mm. but it's a very much a biographical one. Mm. These people are wanting to have a pen picture which puts you in certain categories, mm. whether you're conservative or liberal or left-wing or right-wing. There's a binary way of thinking, and you have to fit in one of them. So they want to put out this kind of a thing so that when the next conclave meets, the cardinals that go in there are going to be bombarded with these pen pictures of the different ones that are there. This one's suitable for this, that one's suitable for that, or not suitable for that. So I think that's going to make it much more difficult, actually. Mm. The other thing, of course, is the Vatican politics. Mm. You can't but get drawn into them when it comes to a thing like a conclave. Mm. For instance, just to go back to Pope Benedict, no sooner had we gathered in Rome, we have those days before the conclave actually is officially convoked. And... Um, there were different meetings taking place, and some of them we were told were meetings of people who are supporting Benedict in you know, Ratzinger. Ratzinger has to be the Pope. He has to be the Pope. And then, of course, there's the reaction. Mm. Stop Ratzinger at all costs. Of course. Mm. So there were those kinds of, of things in the air. Now, whether they were actually taking place or not, we were not quite a subject to social media at that stage. I think with social media, you'd have been bombarded much more relentlessly. Anyway, I remember the one meeting I went to, and it was wasn't quite as open as this. We've got to find somebody to compete with Ratzinger hmm. because the Korea are pushing Ratzinger. The next meeting we went to, I thought might be even more so because it had brought all the English-speaking cardinals together. But it was just the opposite. What it was was each one describing the situation in his area of the world, the church. These are the needs. These are the things we would need the new pope. So let's look for a Pope that's going to do this and this and this and this. So you had the two sides there. The mm. one side, the first experience was very much a partisan. The second one was much more open. And for me, that's the healthier one, where we come in together and we say, this is what we need, this is the kind of Pope. If he has this kind of experience, he will be better able to help us in our particular situation. You know, Cardinal, we've been at two synods together, the yes. one on the family and the mm. one on youth. And yes. one of the things that struck me, I'm just listening to you talk, mm. is also I found the narrative 
outside mm. and sometimes even in the echelons of the Vatican That's about right. the meeting yeah. is very different to your experience inside the meeting. So, for mm. example, you see a report on this divisive thing was said, mm. but when you were actually in the synod hall or in the Not in the small groups, you had a completely different sort of feeling. There was a real sense of people listening and talking and mm. laughing mm. together and debating yeah. things. Yeah. So very often as well, I experienced yeah. this kind of double thing almost. That's right. There was competing narratives, mm. you could say. Yeah, that was very, very true. That was very, very true. And you wonder then who is trying to maneuver the thing into a particular position. Mm. I know in the first one, 2014, I had a very strong sense that the thing was being manipulated. And the reason for that was we had reached the end of our first period of the inputs, to those four-minute um, presentations. And then we were given notice of who our groups were going to be and where we'd be meeting and so on on the Monday. On Sunday morning, the BBC announced that the Synod has accepted what could be ground-shaking changes, reforms to the Catholic Church. We hadn't even started discussing the questions. Mm. So there was this narrative outside there somehow getting pumped into the media at large to give the impression that this is the way the synod is going. And I suppose that the, the intention was, we'll influence some of their fathers into thinking this way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, it's it's quite a beast to to experience and just it to is, see yeah. those, those yeah. differences. Yeah. And that's where I think you've got to keep on reminding yourself. Mm. Even such a meeting with all its flaws, its human weaknesses and so on, the Holy Spirit is really is always present. Mm. Mightn't tell us this is what you've got to do, but mm. you certainly indicate a way in, in dealing how to address that particular issue. Mm. Coming back to South Africa, you've been a bishop. You were a bishop in Coxstad, and now you've been Archbishop Durban for many, many years. Yeah. Life as a bishop. What are the highlights and maybe even some of the lowlights? I would say the highlight for me in Coxstead was actually before I became a bishop. Mm. And that was when I was appointed as apostolic administrator. I was appointed in 1978 in June, and I attended my first plenary session the next year in January of 1979. Mm. And I would say this is another place where the Holy Spirit just comes and intervenes. I hadn't a clue. I'd never been in any positions in the diocese where I had leadership or in the Franciscans or anything. I was just taken from being one of the foot soldiers and thrown in as the general. So I hadn't a clue what to do. I, I went over to Ireland. I checked up with the old bishop there. He had retired there. On my way back, I spent quite an intensive time with one of the Franciscans who was a canon lawyer to help me understand what an administrator does and how he to do things and so on. And eventually, I end up here at the plenary session. And my goodness, what's happening at that plenary session? We are setting in motion the beginnings of the pastoral plan. There was that pastoral consultation. Hmm. So we had to go back home to our diocese and consult as many of the faithful, clergy, religious, and laity, about where does the church and how does the church move forward? Where do we want to move forward to? And the findings of that there were then to be brought together in August of 1980. And it was the... the Best start I could have had because it gave me something to put my teeth into and to bring the priests and everybody on board. Mm. Where are we going in this diocese? And then when we got to the interdiocesan pastoral consultation, it was called in August 1980 at Hammondskra. Then you saw all the 
bits and pieces of the church coming together in South Africa, looking in the same direction. We were blessed with people like Fritz Lobinger and Oswald Hermer, great forward thinkers, planners, mm. and they helped us a lot with that pastoral plan, doing the groundwork, setting out what are the priorities we're going to be looking at and so on. So for me, that would be one of the highlights was involvement in that level of the church's development of a new vision for the conference area. Of course, the ordination as a bishop was uh, one of the fantastic memories as well. Mm -hmm. What was a great shock and a great uh, challenge was two years later to be elected vice president of the bishop's conference and vice president of Imbisa. Mm -hmm. It was a tough one. And then it got tougher and tougher and tougher because this is when we moved into this period of negotiations between the Nationalist Party government and the ANC or the liberation movement, ANC mainly, mm. which saw us going to Zambia to meet with them in Lusaka, the ANC. It saw us meeting with the President Borta, P.W. Borta, and then with other leaders of different political parties. So that period was a really challenging one. From about 1985 to 89 was a really tough one. Mm. Mm. And then you went to Durban. Then I moved to Durban in 1992. And I thought life was complicated enough going from small little Coxted with 13 parishes to one with 75 parishes. Wow. And then to find two years later that the situation in Amzimkulu has gone from bad to worse mm. to desperate. And eventually I said to the nuncio, there's no way but to let the bishop resign and appoint an apostolic administrator. And that's what the, he advised the Vatican to do. So here was I running after two years in, in Durban, where I didn't even know the diocese very much at all, running up and down between Durban and Amzunkulu. Hmm. That was a, a real challenge. And in the meantime, I'm still the president of the conference. I'm the vice president. This, it, was, it was quite a, a challenging time. Sometimes people think the only time that bishops are busy is over weekends when they're doing confirmations. <laughs> they don't know that during the week there's all sorts of other things happening, that it's 24-7. Uh, and sometimes when I was in Coxted, mm. I would have to go up to Joburg three times in a week. Mm. It was just the nature of the time. It was mm. a real crisis that was going on. Mm. Mm. That leads nicely into what I want to ask you about the book mm. you here in Johannesburg mm. to promote and to launch your book, The Here and Now Christian. Mm. In the busy life of a cardinal, archbishop, where did you find the time to put this book together and to just decide on it? Well, I must say that this happened in a roundabout way. Mm. One day, one of the deacons, I think it was, was doing catechism with one of the classes. And he asked the kids, he said, by the way, do you know who is the archbishop of Durban? Mm. Yes, hand shot up. Yes, Johnny, Desmond Tutu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Tutu would have been shocked to hear that. <laughs> anyway, what happened was this deacon said, no, this is really a disgrace. We've got to do something to get people to know who our archbishop is mm. and more about what the archbishop does. So he got together a few of his connections and um, together they formed a group which they called Catholics Awake. Mm. And their objective was, let's make the archbishop known so mm. that people know who he is, number one. Number two, let them know what he's doing. And number three, what are the concerns where they can help him and so on. So the here and now Christians or Catholics got together, had a few meetings. And then after a while, Dawn Haynes came to me and she said, by the way, our group thinks that it'd be a very good idea if we write your biography. 
So I said, all right, I'll think about it. And eventually she came again. And then I was, so she'd come and we'd sit down and talk for a few hours and she'd be writing notes and then she'd send me the notes. I'd edit it and send it back to her. So we're busy doing this uh, biographical side of things. So sometimes she'd just come in and say, by the way, you were very active in the 1980s and during the struggle times. Can you tell me something about what happened in those times? So mm. I'd relate as much as I could recall at that time. After a while, she said, you know, we've got about 20 chapters here, but I don't think this thing is ready to come out just yet. We've got a lot of work still to do. But I've noticed that you've got articles, speeches, talks that you've given this place and that place. Why don't we put those together and put them into a book as a first volume? So we thought about that, and I got together all the articles, somewhere for the Southern Cross, somewhere speeches I gave in in different places, mm -hmm. in different parts of the world. And so she started putting them together, somewhere newspaper articles as well. And she put all those together, and that's how we came to where we are with this, with this book. Hmm. Then she took it a stage further, as you'll notice. It's got a little introduction to each article. Hmm. And then right at the end, it's sort of a challenge. This thing isn't just for information. It's for you to do something. Hmm. Listen carefully to the Pope's messages. Support the bishops in Africa in prayer. Hmm. So there's a practical kind of a thing there as how a here and now Christian uh, should be acting. Mm -hmm. And the proceeds from that book are going to the... Napier Center for Healing, Healing. we've called it, yeah, yeah. Let's just tell people a little bit about that. Yes. The Napier Center for Healing. This came about as a result of a more intensive visit. I'd been to Dennis Hurley Center a few times, but mm. this time I wanted to go to each office and each department. And I ended up in the clinic. Mm. I was talking to the nurse and asking her what kind of people were coming there. They were mainly immigrants, the refugees, but there were also people who were sleeping on the streets. And then she mentioned a particular group, mm. and these were the guys that were on drugs. Mm. Wunga, we call it down in Natal. Mm. You call it Yaope, yeah. But it's the same thing. It's having the same effect. So she said one of the problems with these people is that they can't wash. Mm. So body odor is very strong. And the people, when they come to the clinics, keep on pushing them out. Mm. Stay out, you're stinking. So they set up a, a satellite clinic. They used to go down there every Wednesday. And she said, if you want to see what's happening, come down on a Wednesday and I'll take you down to the clinic. So I duly went down there. And what I saw was heartbreaking. Mm. Broken humanity like you can't believe it. And what touched me most was young kids that were with this group of people, some in their 50s and 60s even, but the majority in 40, 50, that age group, hmm. down to about 16, 17 years of age. Two young girls there, one of them carrying a baby on her back. And I said, my God, we can't just leave this like this. So I went back to Raymond Perry at the Dennis Hurley Center. Hmm. And I said, Raymond, there's something we can do about this drug situation. So he started off a process, called together some parents of former or current drug addicts, got them together. What do you think should be done? And the, the, the outcome of that was we need some kind of a rehabilitation center where especially those who are out of home now because they've been kicked out and they've got nobody, nowhere to turn. They will never get any better in life unless they get some support structure behind them. So let's concentrate on those. And then we looked at where the possible sites we could put this thing, and we found this mission, which I think the Oblates way, way back had set up as a, a hostel 
for possible candidates to the oblate way of life. But it had been abandoned for that purpose for many years. And so we refurbished that there and decided to work towards having 14 at the most in that center. Mm. That's how the Napier Center came into being. And the proceeds of the book are going towards helping yes, that center so we, to... That's right. To we're, we're trying to raise funds in a variety of ways. It's extremely intensive work that has to be done. And we're starting off, so we have to look at try and get as much capital together so that we can keep it going and not have people come there, build up their hopes, and then we can't get to carry on. I think that would be worse for them than if they just continued in the streets where they were. Mm. So if you buy a copy of this book, you are supporting this Napier Center. For very, much so, very much so. Very much. Very important, yeah. I think, to remember. back to the book just if you think about it what for you is the most important part or what do you think you're trying to do you're trying to get people to reflect you're sharing your thoughts with people is there a part of the book that's a favorite part for you or one section you'd say to people you need to actually read that you have to go and read that i think the main one is very often people think bishops have everything on their fingertips under the control mm. You've got your positions worked out. You can just give an answer to any question that's given. And I think that the book is really trying to say, hey, there are a lot of questions here that we just cannot find answers ourselves, mm. and we can't find them alone. Mm. We've got to look with others if we are going to do something. One of the particular ones that I like is the one about violence mm. and how violence is going from violence between men in the form of war no, don't touch on war as such in this thing, yeah? But the violence that takes place between men and men in society, between men and women in the family, between men and children, you know, that kind of violence. And why is it happening? Hmm. Many, we could say, the, the very first reason you come up with is, well, it's just the evil in us, it's the evil spirit. Hmm. It's the nature of masculinity you've got. But there must be something else. Mm. The purpose in much of this year is how do we find the cause of what is making men so violent at the moment? And let's speculate with, with some of the things. Is it just the nature of men? I don't believe so. Mm. I think of my own experience with my father. Mm. And he was a very strong, very tough, very principled person. But I can't remember him ever using violence or force, using force with anybody. And so the, where I grew up, uh, that wasn't, uh, we ourselves, of course, we'd fight like anything as boys, the five boys of us and three of us more or less the same age and same size. So we used to have some real good squabbles. So there's that physical side of it, mm. you know. At school, of course, fist fights were quite common and we'd be right there supporting whoever was our hero. But when you get into society, you get into the family, I think you've got to look more deeply at that there. Mm. My own searching is saying to me, has it got something to do with the fact that men have been taken out of their positions of leadership in the family, in society? They're losing the sense of their self-image, sense of worth. That's one of the possible questions. Why is it that they're doing it like that? But I think one has to go a little bit deeper than that. And for me, it, it looks as if it's got to do with the perception that we have of the value of life. Mm. When a man hits a woman, he's hitting a fellow human being who is the source of life. So in a sense, he's taking a negative attitude towards life. Mm. 
And that, I think, is what the wickedness of men beating their wives in particular. And sometimes they beat them when they're pregnant, which makes it even much worse. It shows then that there's a total disrespect for two lives, not just for the one life. Is that the reason? And if there's this loss of the value of life, has the fact that we in South Africa, right from the beginning of our democratic thing, 1997, we passed the Termination of Pregnancy Act, which removes protection from the most vulnerable of all human beings. And I have to ask myself, is that the fruit that we're bearing out now? And every year, when it comes to August and the 16 days of activism, it seems to me every year there's a, some crime committed by a man which is more violent, more heinous than ever before, more brutal than ever before. Has it got something to do with the fact that we're not protecting life at its most vulnerable. So for me, that's one of the touchstone articles in the book, searching to find the reason why we've become such a violent society. Mm. Do you think that that violence is particular to South Africa, or do you no. think we're seeing this globally? It's global, but I mm. think South Africa, if you look back, I mean, the rugby winning the World Cup just now in Japan mm. throws us back to 1995 when we won it here. Mm. And you think of... What a positive, optimistic nation we were at the time. Mm. We're all going to pull for each other. Mm. We're going to get out the mess that the party that brought us into it, but we're going to do it together. 25 years later, we're looking up and we say, what went wrong? Mm. When you look at it, I looked at the newspaper in August. The front page of the Natal Mercury was faces of young women, mostly young women, mm who had died from violence since the beginning of the year. Mm. What was quite shocking was only the bottom four were from January to July. All the others were from August, Women's Month. And you've got to say, what's gone wrong? Mm. And the other problem, I suppose, is when men are faced with a situation where they've lost their position, they've lost their self-image, what else is there for them to do to convince others that they are still something to affect or to be, to be reckoned with. We resort to our physical strength then. I wonder if that's it. I mean, but this is very much a searching question, yeah. Mm. What has brought us to where we are? Mm. The question of the church's role. How do you see the church's role in, for example, the church is very vocal about things like abortion, mm. but the church must also be doing other things. And I sometimes wonder if we're managing to reach into the homes of people. Mm. Your thoughts about that, you know, in terms of addressing domestic violence, but violence just in general. Because I even notice sometimes with uh, young children on mm. playfields, mm. the kind of fighting that happens, or if one looks mm. at the cyberbullying that happens, mm. seems to have got much more intense mm. than what it was mm. 20 years ago. Isn't it possible that it's because of what they're seeing in their homes, mm. their parents, the violent fighting that's going on there? But I would say, I think we should take our lead from Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. As I said to you, when we went into those meetings before the conclave, mm. we were talking about the situations in our different countries and different parts of the world. And the one recurring theme was that the new pope has to renew the church mm. where necessary to reform the church. Mm. I believe that this was where the real challenge was put to the church, not just to look at violence, but to look at every other aspect of where life is going the wrong way. Mm. When Pope Francis then takes over, his first response is, and he was listening very carefully to what was being suggested, and the first suggestion in those meetings was, the Pope cannot possibly undertake the reform and the renewal of the church on his own. Mm. So he must surround himself with 
people that he can trust implicitly. Mm. Pope Francis reacted almost immediately when he appointed the C8, it was then, and it became C9. Next was, he should call together all the leaders of the church. And the only way you can get the leaders of the Catholic Church together is by an extraordinary synod, mm. because that's when the presidents of the conference come together. Otherwise, you're just going to get the cardinals together again if you call them leaders of the church. So that was the first synod in 2014, mm. on the challenges facing marriage and the family in today's world. Now, I think the outcome of that, or what came out most in that synod, from the point of view of addressing the issue that you're raising now, was if we're going to do this year, then we've got to look at the situation in the family. It's a basis, basic unit of the church. It's a basic mm. unit of society. If we're going to put things right, that's where we've got to start. And then Pope Francis said, in, I think very wisely, made a wise choice. It's a two-stage synod. And we thought, I, I personally thought that, when he comes to the end of the 14, 2014 one, where all the challenges are listed, mm. he'd prioritize them. And then in the next session, we would deal with them. Now, you can imagine, are we ever going to get beyond number two, mm. if, if even beyond number one? I think wisely, Pope Francis said, rather than try to deal with each individual item, yeah, let's look at the, the vocation and the mission of marriage and the family. Mm. And I think that's where our, our church now in South Africa has to start focusing. The pastoral plan uh, is not just for parishes. I think it's got to start in families. Mm. And that, I think, is the way we're going to go about making an impact. If we can impact on family life, we can impact more on the social, on the church life than as in general, and I hope in, in the future into the, the social life of the, of the country. Mm. Final question, Cardinal. We always ask people at the end of these interviews, mm -hmm. in what ways do you think that you're expanding the horizons of hope? And how would you hope that that book is going to expand the horizons of hope? I think when I look at myself, um, if I didn't question myself, if I didn't question the things that I have sometimes taken for granted, if I didn't look at the changed circumstances and say, now, in the past, this is the way we'd have responded to this. Circumstances have changed considerably. Mm. We've got to look at this from a, a different angle. For instance, in the past, we'd have just issued decrees. If you were supposed to do this, you don't do this, you don't do that. I think that's how the church would have reacted in the past. Mm. Now we're saying, bring people on board, mm. and then you can start moving forward with them. I think two catchwords that Pope Francis loves to use. The one is accompaniment. And he's talked about it, accompanying people in marriage situations that are difficult. Young people are preparing to marry, etc., etc. He's got this idea of accompaniment. Even when you get into certain categories of people who are experiencing certain difficulties, homosexual groups and so on, he says accompaniment is the way to do it. I think that's what we're trying to do with the drug addicts at the Napier Center, is accompany them. Mm. So I think this is one of the ways in which the church must get involved, is by accompanying people along the, the pathways. Mm. Um, as far as the moving forward into the future, we've got this pastoral plan. And I would say we would be failing, I think, if we just left the pastoral plan at the level of parishes. Mm. We've got to bring it into the family somehow. Mm. Secondly, I think when it comes to what the church needs to do, we've got to be very clear on, as Pope Francis puts it, and for Pope Benedict before him, the centrality of Christ. Mm. All that the church is doing is not about giving people sacraments. It's giving them the means, the sacraments are means, towards making sure that Christ is the center of our life. 
for Benedict when he was explaining why he took the name Benedict. Mm. He said, St. Benedict's exhortation was, let nothing come between you and Christ your Lord. So the centrality of Christ is very clear. Mm. What does Pope Benedict do? Then he writes those three books on the Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. So if you want to know who this Christ is, it is a resource to go to. Pope Francis comes along then, and he's very first homily after he was elected Pope. And he says, you know, you want to be a true disciple, you've got to walk with Jesus. Don't say follow, walk with him. Mm. The connotation of follow, you could be 20 yards or 20 kilometers ahead of me. I'm still following you because I know I know I was following the same road. But you're walking with him, it's very, very different. Mm. And of course, it immediately evokes the two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Mays. And then you look at what did they do? What did Jesus do with them? This is what the church should be doing, accompanying them. I think that's where we've got to do a lot more ministry to families in order to accompany them. Through the families, I hope we'll get through to the young people, to the children, and then through to society. Cardinal Wilfred Napier, the Archbishop of Durban, thank you very much for your time and for agreeing to talk to us here on Expanding Horizons. You're very welcome. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.